0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode has been brought to you by Magnus Design.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
3: Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world. About a million listens a month. And today... I'm feeling that every single one of them is tuned into Tech Bites, the weekly show where we talk to innovators and influencers in the food tech space. Today, my guest seat is occupied by Mark Oshima, who is a co-founder of Arrow Farms, the indoor vertical farming company in New Jersey, just across the river. And I'm really looking forward to talking to him. There's so many great things. We are going to run out of time. We're going to try and keep it. Uh, top line and informative so we can pack in as much as we possibly can but before we get to Farms, we're going to do like we always do and start the episode with an app going around the shipping container talking about our favorite apps right now Mark, thank you for coming this morning do you have an app that you like right now? and the only rule is you cannot talk about an app that you own invest in or work for
4: well, the app that we uh, find indispensable is Slack right now, just in terms of how do we foster communication. And so using it both uh, with my work at Arrow Farms and talking with the team, but we also use it with uh, the nonprofit I'm involved with, Chef's Collaborative. And so it's just a great medium. It allows us to have instant access and be able to share uh, information in a very easy way.
3: Slack is always a popular one. And I don't know if it's because m- the guest pool are people who are in tech, and in startups, and in innovative fields, and they're very comfortable using technology for communication. But Slack, I would say, comes up every, maybe once a month.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, something that we have found just to be indispensable in terms of, you know, w- there's so many modes of communication, and how do you cut through it, and you think about the, the most direct, and most immediate. Uh, text, email, you know, those things are just, you know, you get sort of inundated. And the Slack allows us to make sure for core key things that we can use that to help us focus.
3: Great. So Slack, another resounding endorsement for Slack. We have now new engineer on the Tech Bytes team. We have Jeet Paul. Welcome. Hello. How are you this morning?
5: I'm good. How are you?
3: Fantastic. So, this is one of the uh, few shows on the Heritage Radio Network lineup where we like to talk to the engineer. <laughs> Do you have an app for us that you like today?
5: Yeah, sure. So, um, I've been using this for, I would say a few years now, but it's called Cash App, which is very similar to Venmo, but... Um, The reason I sometimes use this is that there's no, um, I think Venmo has like a two-day wait period for transfer, but sometimes my friends who need immediate cash or sometimes clients who pay me cash who have owed me for a while, I ask them to send it through this cash app, which is instantaneous.
3: So you prefer cash app because of the transaction times. Does the fact that Venmo has that social media updating component to it have any impact in your decision
5: Uh, i don't think so i rarely i mean i don't know anybody who uses venmo as a social media platform but
3: no but it has as soon as you make a payment to somebody it creates there's a feed on venmo of people's activities so anybody who you're connected with or who's in your phone you'll see well you can make that private you know you can but the other person has to make it private also Um, oh really yeah i mean
5: Huh. Yeah, I usually don't mind. You know, I think people know that I'm a sound engineer. So when they see, you know, hundreds of dollars being transferred to my Venmo, I don't think it looks too sketchy because they know who I well, am. I
3: don't am. know that it's sketchy, but I don't know that I need everybody in Venmo land <laughs> taking a look at, you know, what my, who I'm with and what my transactions are. Right. I mean, that's not information I would post on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. I don't know that, that is I fair. want my financial life.
5: That's true. I guess I really don't care. But Cash App, um, I don't think has any kind of social platform. So it it's completely not, anonymous. Yep.
3: Okay, so Cash App. <laughs> that's good. It's, yeah. it's, we're getting into the financial time of year also when people are thinking about tax payments means. and taxes and mm. things like that. we we'll <laughs> right. maybe have to put together a tax show. We did a tax show last year. With um, the guys from Shoebox, which is the payment software platform for restaurants, uh, Mm. uh, point of purchase software, management, accounting—that was a fun show. Maybe we'll put something together for Tax Day. Sounds good in April. (laughs) So, as I said at the top of the show, Arrow Farms, indoor vertical farming, located across the river in Newark, New Jersey. It's a perfect time. I think to be talking about indoor farming for so many reasons the the huge weather condition polar vortex sub-zero freezing that happened in north america recently not a good not a good situation for farming outdoors (laughs) we also have so many uh, salad recalls last year Uh, more than i'm can recall in terms of produce recalls, potentially also uh, a thumbs down for, you know, traditional styles of, of farming like that. So we have a lot to talk about. Before we get into some of these really particular pieces of news and evolution, Mark, give us a really simple elevator explanation of what indoor vertical farming is for our listeners who might not be familiar with it.
4: Yeah, happy to share. So at AeroFarms, we've been since 2004 really pioneering and championing this new industry. So it's our ability to be able to grow indoors in warehouses. And the idea that we're growing with actually out sun or soil, but we think about what the plant needs. And so we're actually thinking about, for example, uh, from a lighting. Plants don't need sunlight. They actually need spectrum of light. So it's understanding the biology and understanding how to create the light? Well, uh, the right spectrum of frequency uh, of the light, the light spectrum. And so thinking about um, lights actually, uh, plants actually typically need red and blue uh, part of the spectrum. And so we think about sort of the rainbow of colors, right? That's mm-hmm. really the the, the, the- the Roy B. Jiv. Right? The Roy B. Jiv, right? The great acronym that we all remember and how to remember you know, that spectrum. And so the idea that really uh, the red and blue um, and then even the far red are really important in terms of understanding how to optimize the right growing environment. And then plants don't need soil, uh, they need nutrients and water. And so the arrow in AeroFarms refers to aeroponics. So a very different approach than really anyone else out there. We actually are misting the roots in a very targeted way uh, versus uh, hydroponics, which is bathing the roots. And then versus the field, which is really uh, challenging in terms of like they do use traditional sprinkler systems. And so this is a way of growing at AeroFarms that we're able to grow with 95% less water and, and no pesticides. And so it's about a way of growing that's really clean and really be able to deliver uh, a residue-free product to the consumer.
3: I have two questions or thoughts on that description. The first is, how is indoor farming different from greenhouse farming that's been happening for so long? I recall reading about you know the king of France at Versailles who had beautiful greenhouses so they could grow really exotic things for everyone at court, and... Growing indoors in a greenhouse environment is something that's, you know, many, many hundreds of years old. How does, does that connect to indoor farming? Is it completely different? Is it an evolution? I mean, when we think of indoor vertical hydroponic farming, and if you go to the website, aerofarms.com or to their Instagram feed at aerofarms, it looks very futuristic and sci-fi. But is it a progression of something that people have been doing for hundreds of years already?
4: Yeah, there's some basic fundamentals, and so it starts with understanding the plants and the biology, and I think that's where you see some common threads in terms of that history. Uh, but this is definitely the next chapter, the next evolution, and we're really getting a chance to write the next really playbook for agriculture, and it has to do with control and be able to deliver, you know, exactly the right kind of environment for the plants so that they can be optimized for taste and texture, color, nutrition, and ultimately yield. And so some of the examples you're just sharing about the history of like. Having the greenhouse was one way of trying to think about control. Um, the sun, though, turns out to be is one of the biggest variables that we have in terms of that growing part of the equation. And so uh, you think about uh, typical growing uh, in terms of seasonality, in terms of weather, access to the sun, too much sun, uh, creates a lot of variation. And so when you think about how to normalize the growing part and thinking about, again, how do we have that consistency and high quality? By growing indoors, we are able to eliminate that and think about again, what does the plant need at each stage of maturation, each variety, and create what we call the perfect you know, growing algorithm. It's really the right recipe that includes light, as well as nutrients, as well as other environmental factors, to really be able to think about how to manage that in a very consistent way.
3: Sunlight being the big variable, that's interesting to consider that. And then that makes me think about... Aquaculture and irrigation being some of the early technologies from centuries ago, the Greeks and the Romans, you know, they're being able to irrigate things. So people have been able to control water and nutrients, but they haven't been able to control light until I guess you have electricity and then evolutions in the types of light bulbs and things that you can manipulate.
4: Certainly, even with the water uh, aspect of you know, the, the Gardens of Babylon, the idea of you know, growing in water, and we know a number of the plants that really thrive in that environment. Uh, but water is actually another one of the key variables that we have in the equation as well. So we think about 70% of fresh water is going to agriculture, and 70% of the pollution in water is coming from agriculture, uh, this is our most precious resource in the
3: equation. 70% of water in the world.
4: 70% of the water in the world.
3: 70% of the water in the world is going to agriculture.
4: That's correct. And, and then,
3: what percentage of pollution in the water is coming from agriculture?
4: It's 70% as well. Wow. So it's staggering, right? And here in the United States, it's uh, in California, it's actually 80% of the water is going to agriculture. And so uh, we have to think about new paradigms in terms of thinking about the challenges of drought, uh, access to fresh water. And this is really one of the key differences when we talk about um, how we can build farms and be able to enable that. Uh, the work at AeroFarms and using the aeroponics and be able to grow up, 90, up to 95% less water is fundamentally changing that equation. And so it's not only the light, it's also the water and thinking about again, how do you deliver that on a consistent basis? We've had a demonstration farm actually in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, where we're pulling the water out of the air using the humidity there. And so thinking about how can you grow in very challenging environments, uh, very arid environments, and then thinking all of a sudden, again, how to turn that into something green and productive, that's what we're focused on.
3: It's really fascinating, and it's interesting to think about the resource usage of agriculture. And when you say 70%, that's not exclusively plant agriculture. That's agriculture including livestock, and does that include fisheries and things like that?
4: It, it does encompass uh, a wide... So agriculture,
3: agriculture across the board. Agriculture overall, mm-hmm. right.
4: But when we look specifically at the crops we're growing, uh, we talk about California even being higher, but even the crops we're growing specifically, when we talk about growing with 95% less water. That is specifically compared to baby leafy green growers or, or lettuce growers out in the field. And we look at, you know, where there's been innovation. Uh, This is one area that's not uh, been able to benefit from that. And and so they still are using very traditional sprinkler irrigation. And so you think about the water that's being lost to evaporation. It's being uh, really challenging for that, because particularly for this kind of a crop, because of the density, you can't do things like drip irrigation that have been able to be much more judicious with some of the water usage. And so... Um, there's certain crops and specifically the ones that we are really focused on that are really challenged in the field to have some of the advancements and developments.
3: Which crops specifically do you focus on now that we have a sense of what type of farming you're doing with all contro- the controls of the different elements? What are you specifically growing and most interested in right now?
4: What's exciting at AeroFarms is we can grow a wide range of different crops, we actually have dedicated R&D farms that are just growing different trials. Uh, we've grown over 700 different varieties to date. Uh, our commercial farms are very much focused, though, on short-stem leafy greens and herbs. It's where we have some of the biggest impact and some of the most history of growing. And thinking about, again, our true definition around sustainability is really having the right business model. So this is a way of growing that we can really think about uh, for baby leafy greens, for example, out in the field may take 30 to 45 days to grow. Uh, We can grow indoors between 12 and 14 days. So half of even a third of the time that you would have outdoors by giving the plant exactly what it needs when it needs it. And then you think about our ability to grow all year round, right? That's up to 30 harvests a year. The field farmer may get up to to two or three harvests per per season. And so we're fundamentally changing the equation in terms of how we think about uh, the output, how we can really think about... uh, that kind of productivity now per cubic foot, and really change the, the equation in terms of how you enable local production at scale.
3: And you talk about two grow, two or three growing seasons per year. And with the unpredictability of the weather right now, I can't imagine how devastating it must be to farmers in different parts of the country where we have one day it's 50 degrees, we have one day it's 5 degrees, I mean, farming has always been a challenge in terms of dealing with the elements and the unpredictability of it, but I can't imagine that the severity of, of temperature range is helpful at all.
4: <laughs> uh, the variability in temperature range, uh, pest uh, pressure now as well. Insects um, are more acute than ever before with uh, the warming weather. Uh, Traditionally, we would have uh, a kill cycle there that, again, isn't happening, so it's putting more pressure than ever before. Uh, We have an incredible healthy appreciation uh, for the traditional field farmer because of these challenges and really thinking about, again, how can we do things differently to help uh, mitigate that. It is, without question, you know, one of the things that we think about every day about how can we uh, be more judicious with the resources, how do we minimize, you know, some of that volatility. And uh, without question, it's getting more acute every day.
3: Which makes a stronger and stronger case for bringing things indoors where you have a controlled environment and you're almost guaranteed your production levels because it's not impacted by the insanity of the polar vortex that's outside.
4: No question. And, you know, you're talking about, you know, if you were to lose a crop on the field, you know, if you're talking about one out of three, uh, three, one out of two, I mean, if you're losing 50% of your business, I mean, that's devastating, right? Uh, There's a reason why, you know, the crop insurance is such a big part, you know, of the farm bill and helping support uh, some of the traditional field farmers. Uh, But for us, if it's one out of, you know, 30, you know, it's a very different situation. And we do so many things to help minimize any kind of that risk and exposure. And so, yeah, we're in a very different starting point. Uh, And that's what's exciting in terms of we think about managing, you know, and mitigating some of that risk.
3: So interesting. One of the uh, things that Mark and I talked about before the show, when we were having a conversation about what to talk about on the show this technology is so new, and your company is, is relatively new in terms of the life cycle of a, of a company. Do you have a workforce who understands what this technology is? Is, there, is it like farming where there's a, a broad range of work types that go from you know, very manual harvesting type jobs up to the R&D and the very technical scientific. Is this new industry creating new work? And then if yes, are there people who can fill those slots or talk about also what people would study today or what needs to happen today in terms of what the baseline education system is to be creating people to populate this industry?
4: It's a great question in terms of thinking about, you know, how do we, you know, think about the next generation of farmer? And it's so critical when we think about the average age of the farmer today, for the field is around 58. And so uh, we see the generations uh, moving into other areas of opportunity. And so you have that plus increasing urbanization. And so you have a decreased, you know, workforce out there. Uh, what we're doing in Arrow Farms and really writing the new playbook in agriculture Uh, today the organization we're about 130 people we have uh, really in-depth teams not only on the horticulture side but plant scientists crop physiologists plant pathologists
3: so are these all people who come to you with a science background or degrees in chemistry or you know computer and tech people
4: it's a combination. So both in terms of the horticulture, so we're getting people from traditional land-grant you know, universities and thinking about understanding plant, plant science, PhDs you know, in these areas of focus. Uh, but we've also coupled that with the engineers. So the idea of the tech, uh, all of our technology and growing technology that we've developed is proprietary. And it's so critical in thinking about the relationship between the plants and the system, the growing system, and how we put that together because it's really a symbiotic relationship. And it's... In fact, you know this 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 new marriage, you know of these disciplines that are coming together to think about agriculture in a very different way. And uh, not only do we have the, the the engineers, we have the data scientists, we have food safety experts, we have registered dietitian nutritionists on staff. We're looking holistically from seed to package, how do we create a better environment in not only the growing, but in terms of the process? And we look at the plant health, how it translates into human health. And so this is a completely different way of looking at the plants because of the level of control that we can have in the process. And it's using you know, uh, things like big data, uh, Internet of Things, sensors, uh, to be able to monitor. We've got a great partnership with Dell Technologies and thinking about how we scale and how we implement you know, solutions both at the farm level, uh, thinking about uh, also the cloud, how we can be able to uh, access information. So uh, our team can see firsthand what's happening with the plants. They're being monitored 24-7. Uh, we've incorporated technology to help augment, you know, the team members. Uh, but we want to talk a little bit about the history. We've built out nine farms to date. Uh, we have a lot of operating history. I think one of the key things that we've done is really we, we have over 250 different standard operating procedures on how to run the farm. Wow. And so the idea is...
3: Is that a lot? That sounds like a lot, but I don't have a I don't have a frame of reference for farm SOP.
4: Yeah, it, 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 it is a lot. And we're very detailed well, uh, and systematic about how we, you know, track that and... It's really giving the operational playbook, then, so that all of a sudden we can think about that next gen of farm. We can bring in and we're employing you know, the local community. So our farms are really by the community, for the community, uh, the idea that we're creating job opportunities that traditionally people haven't thought in agriculture. So we can take someone who's not skilled in, in agriculture and let them understand what role they can play. And so whether it's the seeding, the growing, the harvesting, the packaging, it's very systematic in terms of what opportunities they have and how they can grow.
3: Do you see that in enticing a, a new generation of people interested in farming? From everything that I've read, farming, traditional agricultural farming outside, has been less and less popular with younger people and new generations. So part of the difficulty in agricultural farming is not just all the challenges that are economical and environmental. But there are fewer and fewer people going into the business to then continue to propagate it and perhaps move it forward into the next generation. Do you see a new generation being interested in this because it's more tech-based?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And and just to kind of uh, illustrate a couple of things that we've done as a company. Um, our roots, we started out up in the Finger Lakes area of upstate New York. And our chief science officer, Dr. Ed Harwood, who developed a lot of the initial technology, he was a professor at Cornell University, uh, one of the top ag schools in the world. Uh, We made a very conscious decision a few years ago to move our global headquarters uh, into the New York metro area. So uh, excited to be in Newark, New Jersey. But we had a very specific lens in terms of thinking about how do we recruit that next generation? Uh, We talk about some of the trends with urbanization where people are going. So there's a huge social component, right, where people are and trying to be Able to compete then against the other actors who are thinking about um, tech and kind of tech jobs, you know that are available. So we are providing a new path, a new opportunity for you know those type of team members, and by being in Newark as well, we also had a very specific lens. Uh, We've had one of our operating farms in an inner city school in Newark now for over nine years. And the opportunity is we're actually creating the next gen of farmers as well. So we're having a, that's a, exciting. an impact on multiple levels. So it's incredibly exciting to see the students engaged. Um, they're doing even their own Raspberry you know, pie ro- uh, programming. I mean, really thinking about technology in a very different way. Uh, they're able to integrate all kinds of curriculum and lessons. And that's not just about the science and the biology, uh, but it's around whole food literacy, where your food's coming from.
3: Eating, cooking.
4: Eating, the values there. It's actually right in their dining hall. And so it's the shortest farm-to-table experience around for the students. Wow. Uh, Incredible connection. I would love to go
3: visit that. That sounds great. I I think we have a field trip. Maybe we can work on that. Field trip. We are going to have to take a quick break and find out who is supporting this show. Did you know Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit? We keep the lights on and the mics hot exclusively out of the generosity of our underwriters, grants, and members who are listeners just like you. Stay with us.
1: This episode is presented by Magnus Design. Swedish designer Magnus Lundström has taken his extensive experience designing best-selling products for companies including Electrolux and IKEA and created his own line of kitchenware. Combining his engineering skills and artistry to produce timeless products that reflect environmental awareness and respect for natural materials. Crafted for everyday use, his mortar and pestles, cutting boards, and spice mills have been repeatedly selected as best in the represented categories for years. You can see Magnus's products online at magnuslundstrom.com. That's Magnus, L U N D S T R O M.com. Or visit his partner's store, Area Home, located below Union Square on 11th Street.
2: Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Coral Lee, and I'm the host of Meant to Be Eaten here on HRN. Every week, I look at cross-cultural exchange in food and contemporary media. What determines authenticity? What, if anything, gets lost in translation when cooking foods from another's culture? You can find Meant to Be Eaten wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org.
3: Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bytes, the weekly show where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today, that intersection is an indoor vertical farming company called AeroFarms. They are located in Newark, New Jersey. If you want to check them out online, they are aerofarms.com. A-E-R-O, you can find them on social media at AeroFarms. If you want to check them out in real life, they have a bunch of events happening around the world. Tomorrow night, we have the Dead of Winter Farmers Bash, which will be happening in Newark, February 19th to the 20th. Aerofarm CEO David Rosenberg will be speaking in Melbourne, Australia. And today, our guest, Mark Oshima, will be out in San Francisco in February from the 20th to the 22nd, speaking at United Fresh which sounds exciting. We have still lots to talk about with AeroFarms. The company is involved in not just interesting business in terms of the products that they're making, but interesting projects outside to sort of further their industry and the world around us. Mark, tell us a little bit about the study grant that you have about studying nutrition and leafy greens. Because one of the great things... About salad is that it's fresh and delicious, and we all eat it. But the downside is that it has a nutritional value of water <laughs> almost.
4: Well, actually, it's one of the most nutritionally dense. Uh, foods out there, and so we think about you know how do you get your daily recommended value? Is it really?
3: I think of yeah. you know whenever I think about it, I think of eating a giant bowl of salad, and it has you know like seven calories, and
4: yeah. So for nutrition per calorie, it's also one of the better uh, options out there. So uh, we are fundamentally though trying to change that equation of how people have traditionally thought about it, and so. Yeah, if you think about traditionally maybe iceberg or even the romaine there's a tremendous amount of water content uh, but there is we're focused on and the program that you just mentioned in our study uh, we actually have uh, a great partnership with the foundation for food and agriculture research this is a nonpartisan organization that's funded out of the farm bill uh, we were the recipient of a million dollar grant that we match it's a two million dollar program specifically around our ability to identify stressors of leafy greens to optimize for taste and nutrition and it's the first time that they've ever awarded this kind of a program and it was precisely because of our control our history and our ability to be able to affect those areas and so actually we're just talking about events Uh, we actually had an event with the far or the foundation for food and agriculture research uh just days ago and we were with secretary of ag sonny perdue and he was enjoying our greens and The idea that we can really think differently about what we're doing. So this program, it's a three-year initiative. It's a great collaboration as well. We talked about some of the work we're doing with the land-grant universities. We're working with Cornell uh, University as well as with Rutgers University and looking at things from a sensory standpoint in terms of that evaluation. And ultimately, we're going to be publishing the, you know, the results here to be able to help further the entire agriculture uh, community. And ultimately, it's about, you know, you want to change behavior, you want to change consumption, you make it taste good. And that's one of the things that we're really passionate about in terms of great tasting food.
3: Are you growing kale? Kale seems to be the number one super food, leafy green, nutritious thing that currently media cycles are most interested in.
4: Uh, We grow uh, an incredible kale, but it's quite different. So people know that they want to uh, and should be eating their kale because it's good for you, right?
3: And kale is one of the leafy greens that has the most nutritional value from what we read in the news.
4: And... Also has some of the different challenges that people might not normally associate with. So, for example, is
3: that true though? Is kale like the top nutritional leafy green?
4: Uh, kale is one of the top. Uh, watercress um, that we also grow is, is one of the top, and probably you know these are considered to be you know superfoods, providing more than you know twenty percent of your recommended daily value. Uh, but kale, traditionally, when you think about, um, can have a bitter note, can be quite rough. Uh, the idea that people eat it because they know it's good for you, but it's more nobody of a, really likes. It. It's more of a drudgery. is the
3: new spinach.
4: It's more of a drudgery, right? And the idea, though, that we can actually grow our baby kale actually is tender. It's actually uh, has a sweet note to it. And the fact is, and yeah, no massaging needed. You can actually enjoy it. And it's not about eating your, your roughage. It's about really enjoying it, the flavor. And these are the things we're excited about. We can change the different characteristics, you know, so our arugula, we can make it more peppery, you know. Um, Our watercress has has this incredible zestiness, but it's very light. Um, These are things that we're excited about in terms of, you know, we have an amazing company story. We're a certified B Corporation. The technology in this nexus of, you know, science and engineering uh, is incredible. But at the end of the day, the product is the hero. That's what's bringing this together. It's driving the the economic model. It's driving our impact in terms of how we think about nourishing communities.
3: And... Nourishing communities, that's such an important thing. So many companies and corporations don't really have a footprint in local communities and aren't really vested in the communities themselves. And so much of consumerism today is based on convenience and an app and what you can do. That oftentimes people do things out of convenience without really thinking about following the money trail or the employment trail or where are these things actually going and leading to so it's interesting that you looked at where your corporate footprint would be specifically with an eye to impacting the local community I don't know that everyone thinks about that certainly people want to be in the New York area but typically it's because they want access to all the money yeah, and I, the media.
4: We, we've been very thoughtful from day one as a mission-driven organization, thinking about all the stakeholders. And you know, when we thought about relocating our headquarters from upstate New York, it was very much about where we could have that biggest impact. And so Newark historically has had very high unemployment uh, as a food desert. And the thing is, you know, what can we do differently there? And so we're offering, you know, year, year-round employment, fair wages, fair benefits. We actually open up our doors, the farm stand, the community can come in, get access to fresh, healthy food. And so it's really, uh, really by the community for the community is what we're really focused on.
3: Do you have any, any things or myths about greens and leafy vegetables that you might want to debunk? Or is there a current, you know, food trend that you want to discuss specifically or address?
4: Yeah, there are a few things. I mean, just even going back to the kale example we were talking about, um, the other news that's been making some headline is the fact that uh, that field-grown product um, often now is very heavy in in, in the metals, right? And so uh, that kind of a plant and...
3: Being concerned about metals is also a new thing. I don't know that consumers had been concerned or even thinking about metals five years ago
4: and so it's around awareness it's around uh education and it's really understanding you know some of the things about our food system and what we see today is a more connected consumer interested in where their food's coming from how it's prepared how it's sourced and you know issues around metals is is, is a very significant one uh the other area that describe
3: uh, quickly what that means for people who don't know well,
4: when you have a that product that's being grown in the field and it's particularly when we talk about the mature kale it's in there for you know a long period of time, but it's actually absorbing heavy metals and pulling it out uh, of the, of the of the dirt into the actual plant and so we think about the plant tissue and so it can be a concern that you know you may be introducing into your own body you know what you think is going to be a healthy nutritious product, but in fact it may be uh, laden with these heavy metals as well. And so they've been able to do some studies and recently looking at kale grown in the field and having those issues and so we can bypass that with our way of growing indoors. The other area though that's so important where education is even more needed is around organic and thinking around organic certifications and so
3: organics the thing that I want, right? It's the means the bestest, cleanest product.
4: There's often a perception around that, right? And unfortunately, you know, there's also a thought that perhaps it's pesticide free. And in fact, uh, it's not, right? So organic farmers use organic uh, pesticides. They even have some synthetic pesticides that are allowed uh, and regulated by the FDA and USDA because there's a recognition how challenging farming really is.
3: What is the FDA definition of organic? It's also one of those terms where people see it, and I think everyone brings their own interpretation of the word to the product, whether that lines up with the legal definition or the actual definition is another question.
4: Yeah, so there's some specific guidelines and there's a, uh, an agency, National Organic Standards Board, that actually makes recommendations and then the USDA and the FDA can act on that. And there's actually uh, a whole nother show that we could do related to oh. this, that uh, the spirit of the organic is if it's grown in soil or not, right? The health of the soil, the vitality of the soil. Uh, we think, at AeroFarms that we are some of the best stewards of the soil because we're actually not uh, planting in it. And we're not actually tilling. We're not releasing any carbon. We're letting the soil you know, have a chance to remediate and recover, if you will. Uh, so we're able to you know, mitigate some of those traditional things that you might think about. Um, but the U.S., and we're this anomaly where we don't follow the international standard uh, for organic.
3: We don't seem to follow many of the international standards on a lot of things not just with food products, but also with health and beauty products and different additives and things like that. I I have the impression that I'm weekly reading an article somewhere about how the United States is different from a European standard and we allow things that wouldn't be allowed in Europe or other parts of the world.
4: Yeah, these are certainly things that uh, we look at uh, on a regular basis. Uh, we are a global company, and so we're operating... And thinking about those regulatory environments in, in different regions. And so, yeah, we have a healthy appreciation of those differences. And then thinking about, again, how we as a company, and this is one of the reasons why we actually are a certified B corporation, the idea that can business be a force for good? Can we think of re- beyond just even the world of agriculture across different industries? And so we have a scorecard on how we're doing against these environmental factors, societal factors that helps develop a new language of what we need in terms of you know how business and uh even agriculture can change for the better.
3: So many new things to think about, new technologies, new jobs, new ways of thinking about things, defining things. It's a really incredible time to be a person alive in the world today with technology and food and farming. It's a really a period of rapid evolution right now everywhere we look that I don't know sometimes if we even realize it because we're so caught up in it. But it really is quite fascinating to think that 10 years ago, so many of the things that we talk about on this show didn't even exist, weren't even a glimmer in somebody's eye. And so much of it is driven not just by technology, but by the changes in human behavior with the advent of the internet and smartphones. It's it's absolutely fascinating. Before we go, I do want to talk really quickly about something that was made headlines in the news over and over and over again last year, which is... So interesting is the whole romaine lettuce problem. And you are part of the Romaine Advisory Food Safety Task Force, which is a thing that exists in the world with the FDA. Tell us about that because it's fascinating that we need and have a romaine food safety task force.
4: Yeah, no question. Uh, unfortunately, romaine has been making headline news this past year. There are actually three different uh, incidents. Right before Thanksgiving, uh, FDA did put out a romaine advisory, and actually, product was pulled, you know, from the shelves out of out of really a a preponderance of caution, and it really underscores what has been really driving insight in terms of a very complex supply chain and being able to trace. And so, the reason, you know, for these and the the increased incidences, there's more testing, there's more awareness around these issues, but. It's also uh, an appreciation of how complex it is to be able to trace it back, not only to the farm, but to the processor. And the processor is pulling in product uh, from multiple different regions, multiple different areas, and so being able to isolate where the incidents may be developing. And so the FDA, uh, working in conjunction with the Produce Marketing Association, with United Fresh, these are major trade associations, and then key actors, and so We're excited that AeroFarms is part of that discussion and having representation to be able to help share best practices, what we're doing, helping thinking about, again, overall what we can be doing differently. Uh, AeroFarms is actually working on a separate initiative, working with the Controlled Environment Agriculture to develop a food safety coalition. And the idea is how can we come together in a self-regulated way to be able to think about, again, how do we develop new standards? and ultimately be able to ensure a more safe, more transparent food system for everybody. And certainly uh, this is important work that's happening. It's important work that's beyond just the four walls of our company. It's about how we can help the overall industry.
3: We did a show last year on blockchain technology as a new trend and something that people are talking about in terms of a potential solution to help prevent some of these contamination issues by being a really specific secure tracking system. Do you think blockchain is part of the future of food safety? Do you use blockchain technology at Aero Farms?
4: Yeah, blockchain is is really uh, this nexus again of the technology and developing a common platform, common language. And so.
3: Sort of like Slack.
4: It's like Slack. Well, <laughs> it's like um, another initiative that happened called the Global Food Safety Initiative that tried to normalize a, a couple of different approaches out there, but in terms of really having some certain standards. And so at AeroFarms, what we're able to do is actually take this and apply it so that we can actually have traceability from that seed to the package and understand every one of the inputs down to the square inch. You're not going to have this control out in the field in terms of being able to think about, again, all the different variables and the different uh, considerations there. And so we're able to fundamentally think very differently about what's going into the product and then the safety of that product.
3: Blockchain, it's coming to save the world, maybe. It was very interesting when Walmart decided to use it and did that test case with it and then publicized that. It seems when a retailer of that size makes a decision to embrace either technology or product or a trend that will definitely move the needle because then it becomes a little bit of a a stake in the ground to become an industry standard.
4: Yeah. And and that's, what's needed to have you know real impact in terms of our food system. How do you change that? And so uh, Walmart and working with IBM food trust, there's other major retailers like Kroger Wegmans that are part of this. It's, Uh, about how we can really think it differently in terms of, again, uh, having a common language, a common approach, and ultimately thinking about the consumer safety.
3: Consumer safety and deliciousness for consumers, which ultimately at the end of the day is the thing that we're all looking for. We're all looking for great food, a nice feeling, good community, something delicious at the end of the day. And most of the technology that we talk about on this show ultimately leads us to a real life food experience and one that hopefully is very good. We are out of time today with Mark. We're going to have to have him back on and maybe do a field trip show to the school in Newark where they have the vertical farming or maybe some other things. We could do a whole show on romaine lettuce if you would like to check out Arrow Farms, visit them online at AeroFarms.com or on social media at AeroFarms. They also have a site specifically for the greens that they sell. If you want to get some for yourself and try them at home, that is dreamgreens.com. And you can find them on social media at LoveDreamGreens. If you have a suggestion you want to talk about this show, you have a trend or an app or a company you would love to hear about on Tech Bytes, get in touch with us. We are very interactive. You can email us, techbytes at You can find us on social media at techbyteshrn. I'm Jennifer Leutze. I host and produce the show every week. We broadcast live at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our engineer is Jeet Paul, Our theme song is No Mata CPU Track, generously provided to us by DJ Uptown Nico. HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Come and visit us online, donate, be a member, show us some love, and come back and see us next week.
2: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community?